Greetings from Charlottesville, Virginia, and welcome to Global Commerce Exchange. I'm Peter Millay, and I'll be your host for today's conversation at the crossroads of global affairs and the world of business. Our show is brought to you by the Center for Global Commerce at the University of Virginia. This episode is co-sponsored by McIntyre School of Commerce and UVA Global. Now, let's get started. My guest today is Jacqueline Novogratz, founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit impact investing firm dedicated to addressing the issue of global poverty. A graduate of the University of Virginia and Stanford Business School, over the past 20 years, Jacqueline has built Acumen into a remarkable force for good, investing in social enterprises across Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the U.S. A pioneer in the field of impact investing, Acumen's portfolio of more than 100 investments is based on the premise that philanthropic patient capital invested with the right entrepreneurs can play a meaningful role in tackling the world's most intractable poverty. In so doing, Acumen has impacted the lives of literally hundreds of millions of low-income people throughout the world. Never one to rest on its laurels, Last year, Acumen expanded its reach, launching Acumen Academy to train and empower the next generation of high-character leaders dedicated to positive social change. A New York Times bestselling author, Jacqueline recently published a compelling new book on her vision for how all of us can work to build a better world. I am incredibly honored and excited to welcome Jacqueline Novogratz to discuss her new book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World, and the lessons it offers for social change agents, as well as our students, alumni, and global friends. Jacqueline, thank you for being here today. It's really an honor, Peter. Thank you. So Jacqueline, I'd like to start by asking, as I do with many of my guests over this past year, how COVID has reshaped the way you live and work. Tell us about your experience. Um. Well, first, just it's reminded me how incredibly privileged and lucky I am, Peter, um, particularly given that we work in places like Pakistan, India, East West Africa, um, post-conflict Colombia, um, that my life has been pretty amazing. The, the most dramatic difference that my friends would say is that I used to travel 70% of the time. And now, of course, I like Rilke walk back and forth in one room and, and, and access the world through that lens. But, um, but there's been a beauty to learning that you can immerse in other places and even in uh, across class, as well as all other lenses through which we can cross um, with the new technologies that we have. So Jacqueline, I've just finished reading your new book. And again, for our listeners, the title is Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. And I must say, it's a great read. Um, let's dive right in. in. In the introduction, you write the following, and I quote, what we need is a moral revolution, one that helps us reimagine and reform technology, business, and politics, thereby touching all aspects of our lives. Tell us what you mean by a moral revolution and the principles you suggest we should embrace both individually and collectively. Hmm. Yeah, the you know, I sat down to write a book on impact investing, as you said, 
we had pioneered the philanthropic backed and now and then we actually started for for-profit impact funds underneath Acumen. And, um, and what I discovered as I was thinking about the technicalities is that a lot of people could write that book. But when you really looked at the difference with those individuals who didn't just create companies, but in many cases influenced societies, they were differentiated by character. And so what we need right now are leaders who have that character who can reimagine the institutions that are so broken around us and, um, and, and all of them, for the most part, are broken. By moral, I don't mean a set of rules prescribed from some higher authority, but rather a framework that moves away from seeing the individual and profit at the center of everything and rather um, dares and insists on putting our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth at the center. Yeah, it's so interesting to me that you focus on this idea of of character, which I must say is not something maybe we talk enough about um, in our educational institutions. As as part of that, you also talk about this idea of moral imagination that really struck me. You you describe it as viewing other people's problems as if they were your own. And then you go on to say that moral imagination starts with empathy, but it does not content itself simply to feel one another's pain. Empathy without action, you say, risks reinforcing the status quo. Tell me more about that idea and how it fits into your thinking. Hmm. Well, I actually think I, I really started to understand it when I was at, um, at Virginia. Um, it was... One Christmas time when I decided that I, I worked with the organization Madison House and I wanted to bring uh, a holiday dinner to a low-income family in Almoral County and um, had a great party, had everybody bring turkey and all the trimmings and lots of toys for the kids. And um, somewhat hung over the next morning, my roommate and I threw everything into the car and we found ourselves after about a half an hour driving into another world. Literally, the, the roads weren't paved and there were we couldn't find street signs. And um, we kept asking nice people for directions and seemed to get more and more lost. And finally, we, we saw a house that looked very much like a, a shanty. And, um, and we stopped the car. We identified the house as, this, as, as the one we were going for. And I just felt overcome with shame. And I said to, to my roommate, I was like, just keep the car going. And I grabbed all the stuff. I ran and I dropped it on the front porch and I ran back into the car and we took off. And I was trying to process what, why are these feelings of shame coming? And it was obvious like here I was this, you know, smart aleck, co-ed, do-gooder that wanted to bring a big holiday dinner to a quote unquote poor family. I had no idea who they were. I didn't. I knew the ages of the kids, but I didn't know what the kids liked. I didn't know if the parents had told them a different kind of story about Christmas or who we would be by showing up. I hadn't done the work to put myself in their shoes. Um, and so I, I had empathy, which I would, I would connect almost more to sympathy. And it was good. We did something good and brought a little bit of joy, but nothing changed. And that if I were really serious about change... 
I would have learned about the family, taken the time, understood what what was in their way. Um, and if I couldn't do that work myself, I could have found an organization that was willing to do that work. And if you take it to the next level of the moral imagination, what's required of us right now in this time of so many broken systems, you got to go from that micro, that single family, and and take it to the macro. So looking at a low-income person, um, empathy is your first step. But your second step is immersion, get close, understand the problems from their perspective. Third step is then analyze the systems around them. What gets in their way? And do you have the honesty to recognize uh, when they might get in their own way? And then fourth, move into action. I think too many of us use the lens only of our own imagination, even when um, we're trying to solve problems for people whose lives are utterly different than our own. And that's playing itself out right now across America and frankly, across the world. So it, it isn't only that it makes you more, this moral imagination makes you more uh, passionate about what you do, but I hear you suggesting it makes you better at what you do because you can really start to imagine solutions, not from your own perspective, but from the perspective of the people you're trying to help. Yeah, it's super muscular. Sometimes we speak in the words, you know, using the words of moral imagination, it sounds poetic, but it is, it's gritty. It's that, it's that vision that is required to see the world that you want to create. I want to get rid of world hunger. I want to electrify the world. I just want to, I just want to reinvent this university. Um, but then you also have to have the, the humility to recognize the mess you are in. I sometimes say the miserable reality of what is, and you have to hold those two in tension and still do the work to build that, that world that you can see. And that's the, that's where the moral imagination is so important. So you mentioned a moment ago that this isn't, you know, about a particular religious ideology or organizational code, but I did note in your book, you talk about your childhood raised in a military family of faith. And I'm curious whether that experience as a child shaped your worldview and and the work you've gone on to do with your life. Yeah, I think it definitely did. I think we're all shaped by our our childhoods. And, um, And for me, growing up in a, you know, seven kids, Catholic military family, immigrant family on top of it. Um, I think I learned or was molded very early by ideas of duty, authority, um, and through the Catholic almost social justice angle, I was told by the nuns, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected over and over. And um, and the immigrant side of the, the, the equation was we show up, hard work equals success. I mean, these were almost drilled into our heads. And so... Um, I do think sometimes about where we are right now, where we haven't created the spaces to have real conversations, whether it's from a secular or a religious perspective around the values that we hold. And because everything is politicized, I I worry, sometimes especially in our universities, that we're not having the conversations that matter in ways where we can really hear each other and get to the fundamentals of 
what it actually means to navigate all these different belief systems, which we have to be able to do right now, in ways that also build companies and organizations that allow us us all to, to, to thrive. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And never more so at this time when our students and young people are facing a, a just almost unimaginably you know, confusing and, and, and frankly, scary uh, world in many respects. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the work that you do at Acumen. You all pioneered the field of impact investing, you know, long before it became the hot topic that it is today. But your version of impact investing strikes me as unique. In a world that places philanthropy at one end of the spectrum and investing at the other end of the spectrum, you talk about something that you define as philanthropic patient capital. Tell us about this approach and what does it really mean? Sure. And and I guess the, 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 the top line rubric is investment as a means, not as an end. So everything we do is focused first and foremost on the problem that we want to solve. It is not focused on the, the particular tool that is in our hand. And I think it's one of the great conceits of too many impact investing firms is that we start with the instrument. I, I do impact investing, therefore I want to do some good in the world. But the only way I can really talk about what I do is in the financial returns that I get. And, um, and Acumen's the opposite. What problem are we trying to solve? And then can we be smart enough to, to discern the right kind of capital to combine with the right entrepreneur to solve that problem? And so we start with the philanthropic backed, Peter, because we're creating markets that have never existed before. And so it, 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 business as usual would never work. And the example that I'll often give is in off-grid energy, where in 2007, you had a billion and a half people with no access to electricity. And so we could take risks where nobody else dared using the philanthropy that we had raised, but investing equity in two guys that had a solar lantern and a dream that they were going to eradicate kerosene, which was used by the billion and a half people. And we could accompany them not for five to seven years as a classic VC, but 10 to 15 years. And, um, and over those years, not only did we put a lot of investment capital in, probably six million of our philanthropic backed, uh, we supported it with a lot of talent, which was more philanthropy essentially to pay for that talent. And then we got to a point where D-Light was a $50 million company and still the impact investors weren't investing. And so we went and, and, and built a $70 million impact fund using for-profit capital, returnable capital, um, that then allowed us to crowd in other investors into D-Light and a host of other companies. Um, and so now D-Light is, I think they've now brought light and electricity to about 110 million people. That company wouldn't have happened, certainly not in the way that it did, had we been looking for uh, quote-unquote market-based returns, which I don't even know what that is when there is no market, but put that aside. But market-based returns um, in a, when your customers are as poor as these customers are, where there's no infrastructure, where there's no business model, where there's very little trust, 
very few skills, no financing. Um, there's a real need for patient capital. So almost your, what you're describing sounds to me like uh, the angel investors of the impact world. You're, you're the people who come in first and address what is seemingly impossible, impractical, never going to happen. But you're the ones who say, well, let's try it, but we've got to assume that it's going to produce returns over a different time frame and in a different way. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, technically, I would say we're more seed in that we um, rarely do startups. Um, in the early years, uh, I broke a lot of rules, um, of our own rules. Uh, now, I would say, and we still do a couple of startups every year, but for the most part, um, an entrepreneur would have started uh Usually, as you said, impossible, crazy idea. Uh, in the book, I write about the two guys with the chicken idea. Um, you're, you're in a nation like Ethiopia. There is no chicken industry. Government has controlled the chicken industry, and they're literally an average Ethiopian eats a half a kilo of chicken every year. Um, when they, when, when Dave Ellis um, first came to us with this company that he wanted us to invest, it was way too early. They were they were making every mistake in the book. And we said no for a couple of years. And they just kept trying and they finally came back to us. We were their first institutional investor. Um, but I would say it's more seed. And then our expectation is we're marrying them. This is going to be a, a, an eight to 15 year game. And, um, and then additionally to that, we bring a lot of other support um, to do a, to accompany these entrepreneurs, and it's another great success story. And we don't obviously have all success stories; we have failures. But they now serve about twenty million smallholder farmers, and have really changed the the whole landscape of chicken farming. And um, and we measure impact, and they've also reduced child malnutrition at least in one region by eleven percent. So we're not we're not the there are angel investors in the in in our world that deals with very low income people, but we are much more about that long term play with a, a, a huge amount of um, accompaniment. And because in some of the countries in which we operate, there aren't very robust capital markets. You've worked in some of them. Um, we have to keep carrying them going forward with different kinds of capital, which is why we have the for profit funds too. So as you do this wonderful work that you do, tell me a little bit how you measure success. And I suppose that must start with not only some measurement of financial success, because obviously you have to stay in business, but also measuring those, um, those social returns. In the book, you talk about a concept that you describe as lean data. And I wonder if you can tell us what that is and how you use that in a practical way at Acumen. Yeah. When we started, we had made a promise to the philanthropists that supported us that we would measure what matters, not just what we could count. But we had very rudimentary tools, frankly, and we were mostly... Um, measuring outputs. We could we could tell you about the number of malaria bed nets we had manufactured or the number of lights that were uh, distributed, but we couldn't really tell you about changes to people's lives. In 2011, when you now had um, not only smartphones and cell phones, 
but um, you had a wide scale proliferation, particularly across East Africa, where we started. We were, for the first time, able to text five, 10,000 customers of one of our companies at a single time, ask a series of questions through which we could deduce what the customers felt about the products they were using. Um, was it, if it was a solar light lighting product, how many more hours a night were they staying up? Um, what was the quality of that light? Uh, were they able to throw away their kerosene lantern and therefore reduce smoke inhalation? Um, did their kids study more? And we got this huge host of uh, information that suddenly allowed us really for the first time to be just as rigorous and disciplined as in, in studying and quantifying the social impact as we could the financial impact. And now we're the largest off-grid um, solar energy investor in the world when it comes to low-income people. So we can look across the sector and make comparisons on an impact basis not just on a financial basis. Um, and that changed everything for us. It also meant that lots of other organizations wanted us to do their impact work. And so um, we got to a point where we decided to spin off lean, lean data into a for-profit company called 60 Decibels, which now uh, is doing the lean data work for many different companies and organizations. And it's exciting to see. So as you're talking about the wonderful work you've done around solar, I can't help but thinking about the climate conference that President Biden is hosting today and tomorrow and how much climate is now back on the agenda here in the United States. Of course, it never was off the agenda in most of the rest of the world. How does climate figure into all of this? I mean, I, when I think of Acumen, I think of you as first and foremost about addressing the needs of the most impoverished people in the world. But I imagine climate must be pretty baked into what you do as well. Is that right? Absolutely. When we started, quite frankly, I was, as you said, we were really focused on poverty, healthcare, education, housing, water, energy. Um, over the last 10 years, it's been, become really clear to us, not only um, are you talking about poor people when you're talking about climate change, but the poor are disproportionately impacted by climate. I mean, you think about the fact that there are 2.4 billion smallholder farmers in the world, 2.4 billion, that represents 50% of the lowest income people in the world. And our agricultural investments are deeply hit by droughts, floods, the share locusts, um, infestations, famines, uh, cyclones, sometimes all in one or two seasons. And so this really matters. And this is where we've been working, um, again, on the impact side with the Green Climate Fund. Um, we've now got three different facilities with them. One is specifically around um, building companies that help uh, smallholder farmers become more adaptive and resilient to the vicissitudes of climate. And another is this off-grid energy. And people say, well, isn't it a bad thing to get people electricity in the developing world? Because that will lead to climate. Um, and the truth is no, because when people are dependent on kerosene, they're emitting carbon into the atmosphere. Two, if we don't find ways to develop economically in a continent like Africa, which has 1.2 billion people, um, the people will inevitably 
like anybody using moral imagination, want to leave. It will increase instability, and we're already seeing people being displaced by climate. And so it really behooves us to find climate-smart ways to bring people electricity and other ways that they can develop themselves so that they can solve their own problems. And by, by that, I mean, with off-grid solar, you're not only providing electricity, but because it, it, it is avoiding carbon, you're, you're helping to prepare to avert long-term climate crisis as our population grows. Yeah, absolutely. Jacqueline, I'd, I'd like to turn back to um, the pandemic, if I might. As you well know, there's a perception here in the U.S. that COVID is on its last legs with the vaccine rollout gaining steam. Yet at the same time, globally, we're seeing record levels of new infection, notably in India, in Latin America, in countries where you all do your work. How are you thinking about these parallel realities? Again, talk about the moral imagination, Peter. Um, I was on the, the phone this morning with our India director, where yesterday there were 300,000 cases. And um, one of our companies, who I also spoke to today, is a company called LaborNet. Um, this pandemic has shown us all the cracks in all of our systems, and I think broken open just how um, exposed we are and how much more importantly, exposed very low-income people are. So LaborNet has trained about a million low-income workers, like construction workers and um, uh, leather tanners. And on the day of lockdown, first day of lockdown in India, 100 million migrants were left uh, thousands of miles away from their homes um, with no protection, no way to get back. And they, they, they would be arrested if they were in the streets. And so this company had to pivot on a dime. And, um, and at the time they were training 100,000 workers with a staff of 2,000. And Gayatri called me and said, you know, I have no choice but to find a way to shelter and feed 100,000 people. And so the, the change in us was to fully pivot our model um, and to recognize the power of community. And that while Acumen makes long-term debt and equity investments, suddenly we knew that the kind of capital that was needed was grant, grant capital. And so we reached out into our community, both, in, both donors and investors, and we raised several, many million dollars. Um, we redeployed ourselves so that we could then deploy the, that money almost as a, a PPP for low-income communities so that they could save jobs, in Gayatri's case, feed people, and just get people through. And what's, a, what's exhausting and, and certainly uh, causes pause right now is, at least in India, we're sort of back. And so we need to figure out what's this next wave, particularly as we sit with so much privilege in the United States and our feeling freedom and an ability to... Uh, feel more normal again, we also have to take to, to recognize that the world is unequal, that our, our solutions are so unequal. And the short-term blindness of that is that we are um, not going to solve COVID until we solve it for the vulnerable. And 
the strains, the new strains in India are much more virulent than what we've seen in the United States, and people are traveling all over the world. So I think I think this is that moment for us to know what's local, and we need to solve our problems locally, but also recognize what problems must be solved globally. And climate and pandemics are two of them. So, you know, when I think about the pandemic in a global context, and, you know, I, like you, have also traveled to most of these countries, it just strikes me that the impact is so much more devastating and so much more long term because the the safety nets just simply Gone. aren't there and and so when people lose their jobs they lose their livelihoods as you say they're migrant workers that are far from home and they're utterly on their own with no government no ppp program no anything to support them um what do you I mean, how do, how do you even wrap your mind around what the long-term implications of that will be for, for children who have missed education, for families that have slipped back into poverty? It just sometimes overwhelms me, that challenge. I think this is where I ultimately decided to write a book on moral revolution rather than a book on, on what should be, yeah. because um, where I derive great energy, and I dare say a hard-edged hope, not an easy hope, is um, that I have. I've now worked with you know over a thousand entrepreneurs that um, they don't stop, like Gayatri Vasudevan with with LaborNet. Um, not only did she get these hundred thousand people through the pandemic, the worst of the pandemic, but she pivoted her whole organization, and now we're working together to really think about. How do we insist on social protections for these workers, not just um, jobs and training? Um, how do we grow fast enough and large enough that we can also be a voice for change? And Peter, some of the things I've seen have been awesome. Um, in Pakistan, we have a, a fellow um, in Acumen Academy named Sarah Kuram Saeed, and she had developed a, a tech platform so that uh, women doctors could uh, provide healthcare through telemedicine to women in the rural areas. But pre-pandemic, women in the rural areas didn't want to pay for a consultation on an app. They didn't want to use the app. And so she built 26 clinics where she could have a health worker be the one who communicated with the doctor. And that worked. But on the first day of lockdown, private clinics were considered inessential. And so again, she just had to make a decision on the spot and decided what was her North Star, um, announced that the, that the app would be free. And she asked um, doctors to volunteer their time and provide health consultations. And very quickly, thousands of people were using the, the app. Doctors were coming to her not only across Pakistan, but across the world. Then she went to government to say, I've got this army of doctors, but they're not certified in Pakistan, so that the government could then look at countries like New Zealand and the United States and Canada and allow those doctors to provide those consultations. And, and now there's a private-public partnership that I dare say is changing the way healthcare will be delivered, um, at least in one vertical of, um, of health in Pakistan. And I see models like that in the United States happening too, Peter, where 
entrepreneurs that are driven not simply to make a lot of money, but with a clear North Star that they want to solve problems in the pandemic, not only accelerated change, but used technology, traditional investment, philanthropy to create new business models within the past year that have increased jobs, fought the fragility of too many of our systems, and brought critical services to people who don't otherwise get them. And that gives me hope. We have to do a better job of telling those stories and finding new role models and business models that show the next generation what success can really look like. Jacqueline, you mentioned um, Acumen Academy. And of course, as an educator, that particularly uh, piqued my interest. Tell me more about why you created Acumen Academy and, and what you're trying to achieve with it. Sure. I mentioned that in building Delight, um, not only did we put investment capital in, but at some level, at some point, we realized we also had to support it with talent. And so probably 15 years ago now, we started with a global fellows program where we would identify incredible um, pe- people from around the world, many from business schools, who wanted to um, take their skills and use it f- to build these kinds of companies. And um it was a year-long program. It was expensive, but we did create a lot of architects of the social sector and great stories connected to that. But at some point, our advisors in places like India, Pakistan, Nigeria, Kenya said, it's not enough. You're sending just a few people each year. We have a talent problem in our country, uh, not to mention a leadership problem. And so we said, all right, well, we will build local fellows programs Um, provided we identify people across race, class, ethnicity, religion. And so we started with fellows. But what we would find is in a country like India or Pakistan is we'd get a thousand applications for 20 slots. And so um, we decided two things. We would make a 30-year commitment in each of those countries so that a diverse group of entrepreneurial, morally inclined young people would know each other across all these lines of difference so that when they were running the corporations and the universities and the nonprofit organizations, they would know their countries in a way our, our leaders don't. And two, because there was so much more demand than we could meet, we thought, let's make an experiment and see if we can throw some of these courses online. Would anybody come? And we've had about a million signups for those courses. And so I guess the answer is Yes. And now we have Acumen Academy fellowships operating in about 18 countries. But we have Acumen Academy online, which includes um, a course called The Path of Moral Leadership, which is essentially the master course for the book. And, um, And the hope is that it can be a model for how we bring education that emphasizes not just content, which is what too many of our universities do, but also the character that's needed to reject the status quo and build the kinds of companies that truly do become more sustainable and inclusive um, and hold them to both of those uh, metrics when they consider their own success or lack thereof. Wow. So can our listeners engage with that content on the Academy if they want to do so? Absolutely. Just go to acumenacademy.org. You don't have to be enrolled in or officially accepted. You can just sign up and take a course. You can take a course. The The Path of Moral Leadership um, 
is 11 weeks long, um, but a lot of teams are taking it. Mm -hmm. And um, what's really cool about it is all the different teachers along the way. I do a couple of the webinars, but um, live, but the, that there are people from all over the world and you'll find yourself Mm -hmm. in these groups with people from all over the world. And the conversations have been just awesome. Um, There are other ones that are as short as an hour, but um, it's a real mix. Fantastic. So last question I wanted to explore with you is thinking about um, our students and our young alumni. Many of them, like you, have their first uh, jobs on Wall Street. And in your case, when you joined uh, the then Chase Manhattan Bank, um, you became exposed to and interested in in microfinance and the Grameen Bank model. And you write in your book that the Jesuits have a powerful saying, go where your deepest yearnings meet the world's greatest need. I yearned to contribute to the economic development of low-income people, to learn about the world, and to live in a new culture. So I took that job in West Africa. I just started. Tell me what you mean by this concept of just starting. How did it feel for you at the time? And what advice can you offer young people today who, like you, are seeking meaning and purpose in their lives and careers? Hmm. There's a lot packed into that question. Um, A lot of young people, and frankly, people in their 50s and 60s too, come to me and say, you know, I really want to contribute to the world, but I haven't figured out what my purpose is yet. And um, and I say, you know, you're asking the wrong question, that you don't need to know what your purpose is at the beginning. Purpose doesn't come to people waiting at the starting blocks for purpose to show up. The way you find it is to live into it. And so just start. Um, This idea of the Jesuits, as you said, that um, the way to start is to look at the problems around you. And right now there are many. Most of them are just disguised um, as real real opportunities. And so if one attracts you and you feel a sense of energy for it, take a step toward it. It may be volunteering. It may be taking a job. It may be making the decision to try to create something. We all have different situations, different risk levels, different economic situations, but um, don't be afraid to stop, to start. And you take that first step. And in my case, I took a step and fell flat on my face. I failed miserably and it was scary and mortifying and, um, and really tested my own sense of who I was, um, because I arrived in West Africa and really met with pretty much outright rejection. Um, I had left this big job and um, I was embarrassed. And yet I knew that once I was in, I was in. And that I couldn't go back until I had taken another step. And my second and third steps were also pretty calamitous failures. But With each of those steps, I learned. I learned humility. I learned to listen. I learned that I loved doing this work that was so hard that it just took all of my intellectual capabilities as well as cracked my heart open in a million directions. And I wanted to be that fully alive in my life. And so I kept taking steps and it wasn't pretty. But at one point, 
I was ready when a group of women walked into my office in Kenya and said, we've just changed um, law in Rwanda. And for the first time in history, women can open a bank account without their husband's signature. Would you come and help us figure out whether we might create some kind of financial institution? And not only did I say yes, but Peter, I knew I was going to create that institution. And, um, and I was ready, even though I was only 25. And I think it is in that falling down, in that trying hard things, in that daring to take a step that we end up finding not only what our purpose is, but we find out who we really are. And, um, and I think the question to ask ourselves is not what's going to happen if I fail, because you are going to fail. It's not um, to, to just hold the fear, but it's to ask yourself, what's the cost of not trying? What's the cost of not daring? And um, I don't think enough of us ask that question. And right now, given how privileged we are, even if we get to just go to a, a good school, we're, we're more than the top 1%. Um, we're the new Brahmins. If you look at a caste system, then what is the, what do we have to lose? Going back to the old, you know, first grade teachers um, to whom much is given, much is expected, and the world needs us now. Jacqueline, incredibly inspirational, not only your comments today, but uh, your book as well. Thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you so much for everything you do at Acumen, and, and thank you for being here today. You know, you, you talk in the book about the importance of telling the stories that matter, and I think we've certainly accomplished that today. So I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here today and taking the time to speak with our audience. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's really, it's a great honor. And I just wish I were back at school because um, this is the most exciting time to be, um, I think, thinking about uh, the world that we need to build because there's no way but up right now. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Global Commerce Exchange is produced at the University of Virginia's McIntyre School of Commerce by Rick Carew. Special thanks to Al Hoover, McIntyre's Director of Media Development for audio editing. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of either the school or the university. Sign up for future shows at globalcommerce.substack.com and subscribe to Global Commerce Exchange wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our listeners and we look forward to being with you again soon. And as always, Go Hoos!